All right, so here's the question I want to give you this morning. I want you to think about it. What does God want from you? What does he want? What does he want more than anything else from each of us? You know, this is a text that we'll look at this morning that talks about what God wants from leaders, but I'm going to just assure you of something from the beginning. What God wants from leaders is, he want, is what he wants from every believer in Jesus Christ. You know, as a young pastor, and I think I've probably reflected upon this with you, as a young pastor, I, I went to a lot of conferences because I was ignorant, I was green, I was unskilled and untried in so very, very many ways. Uh, I noted when I went to conferences that most pastors leading conferences were highly gifted. Most of them were authors. Most of them were highly productive and successful. And the truth is that most of us attending those seminars were zealous for the same thing. I attended a conference in 1991 at Willow Creek Community Church. This was a real encouragement to a pastor with a church of 50. Their average weekly attendance on the weekends was 20,000. I could barely praise God for them. 1995, I went to Saddleback Community Church, Rick Warren's church, uh, for a conference. There were 5,000 people at the conference. The notable feature is that most of us were abundantly average. I was terrified by the thought of pastoring a church of that many people. Most of us, however, attended to learn strategies for success from leaders that we didn't know and that we couldn't qualify. Knew nothing about their personal life, but thought that since they got where they are, they were worth following. And that is a tragic mistake. The truth is, I always came away from, from those experiences overwhelmed and ultimately and deeply discouraged. Why? Because most of us as Christians, not just as leaders, but most of us as Christians tend to or are prone to evaluate ourselves by comparing the results of our efforts with the results of their efforts. If you want to live in permanent discouragement, do that. Measure yourself by the accomplishments and success of others. At times you will find it motivating, but most of the time I believe you will find it to be profoundly discouraging and ineffective. It's good to learn from effective people, from gifted people, that God has given a good sense of how to operate in the context of church life. It's good. But the question we must ask this morning is, what does God want? What does he require? What does he say qualifies us as successes in Christian living or in ministry? Either one. Take your choice. What, what sets people apart in the mind of God? And says that their effort, their work is valuable to God himself. What will earn Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know a Christian who doesn't one day want to hear those words. That's what I want to hear. The passage begins with the words this then. We're at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 
Uh, we're coming off of chapter 3 that we looked at last week. Paul's directive not to boast in human leaders, not to pledge allegiance to anyone other than God himself. And what Paul's going to do is press to answer a question here this morning. And you'll notice there's a transition in the text because of the, of the words that are used to conjunctions. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, meaning Paul, Apollos, Peter, those that God had given talents to effectively lead in the context of church life. This is how you ought to value or regard us. And I want you to listen to what Paul says. Because he's going to answer the first question I want to deal with this morning, and that is, what are leaders? What is the average Christian to God? Not what do people want you to be, but what are we to God? Here's what Paul says. You ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Now, you may not find it this way right now, but I hope to your soul and heart that is some of the best news you've ever heard. You're going to need a little bit of context to come to that place. Let me walk through this text. Paul answers the question, what are we as leaders, what are we as Christians to be? The first word that he uses, we are called to be servants. Now, I could go into a lot of the etymology of this word, which I don't think has a lot to do with what's going on here. The word simply means one who is in a position under authority. Okay, they are not the owner of what they control and work in. They are servants. They operate under the authority of someone else. They are, as 3.5 says, they are humble field workers, and self-consciously so. Paul will repeatedly refer to himself as nothing more than a servant of God. And that's all he needs. No other accolades, no other praise. It disturbs him and it troubles him and it tempts him. So we are servants. And then he goes on to give you a little more insight. Servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries of God. Now, the word once entrusted, if you're familiar with the word steward, in our contemporary terminology, we would use the word manager. A manager is not an owner, okay? I'll use an illustration because my brother's here. He is the owner of Harleysville Ace Hardware, okay? That's a place where I grew up, and he is currently the person that owns that franchise and is responsible for that business. He has hired a guy named Jim, who is his manager, Okay? Jim is someone under authority who has been given a trust, a set of responsibilities. That does not make him the owner of Harleysville Hardware. Okay, it makes him someone who serves the owner at his bequest and bidding. His goal is to please not the employees in the store, not the customers, but ultimately to to please the person who owns the enterprise. Okay, does that make sense? That's how Paul sees himself, a servant of God who has been entrusted by God with, and he uses the word mysteries. I'll come back to what that means in just a minute. Now, here's here's what I want you to see in the text, that a manager is someone who is a trustee. They are acting as a legal agent or acting on behalf of someone else. 
So in everything they do, they must think about what would please the person to whom I am accountable. That's the way every Christian should live their daily life. It's why we have that question, what would Jesus do? I prefer to say, what did Jesus do and go and do it? Because I'm accountable to him to replicate his life on a repeated basis in my sphere of influence for the glory of our Father in heaven. Now, what does God require? And here's what it says. Those that receive a responsibility, a stewardship, are required, verse 2, to prove faithful. I, just want, I want you to notice that it's not just to be faithful. It is to prove faithful. Here's the idea. It is to be assessed as up to the task and faithful over time. It's not, you know, high acts, great decisions on the part of a manager that please the owner. It is good behavior and good management over time that justifies the value of a manager and his pay. Okay? So it's not that someone accomplished something great and wrote a book. And that, in, in, in American Christianity, that means you're somebody. You had an experience, you wrote that experience in a book, and you were honored, even though people have no clue about your life. It's not the biblical test. The biblical test is the evidence of your life over the long haul. That's what it is to be faithful. It's not a flash in the pan. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon, lifelong in which the aim is to run to the goal of pleasing God above all things. You know, it's interesting when you look at the qualifications of leaders in the New Testament. You go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, read the list. Here's the thing that's going to jump out to you, because I want, I want you to understand what makes the role of those that have the task of preaching and teaching in this church. I want you to understand the qualifications for that person. The text says nothing remarkable. And all of you said, okay, then you can qualify, right? <laughs> no, there's, there's, it, the, what's amazing about the list is that it is unremarkable. The only two things in the list that are out of the norm are that they must not be a new believer and they must be able to teach. That's it. Everything else in the list of qualifying to lead and influence in the church of God is unremarkable things. It's very basic qualities and characteristics that should be normal for every believer. Now you start to understand why God's qualifications for leaders are not that they'd be incredibly successful, uh, not that they'd be incredibly eloquent, attractive, charismatic, None of those things are in the list. None. They're common traits that are to be evaluated and proven over time faithfully before God in order to be in the position of leadership. Nor are they people who are perfect. They are people who are flawed, repenting, and striving to be what every Christian ought to be. That gives me hope. Okay, there's nothing extraordinary here. Nothing outstanding, nothing eloquent, just willing. That's it. That's all we have. And that's all that God requires of every one of us. They simply need to be faithful Christians by reputation over time. And here's what I'm going to say to you. The qualifications of every leader in the context of church life ought to be the characteristics that every 
believer in the church is seeking to acquire, to emulate, and to demonstrate in their life. I want to tell you what the danger is. The danger in Paul's mind here, because you remember, in the Corinthian church, people were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I have this gift, I have that gift, and there was this tendency to want to elevate to a level of importance that Paul is fighting against. He's going to do it throughout the text. He's going to fight against that tendency. Here's the truth, and here's the danger. Focus on highly gifted people devalues average people. Therefore, it devalues the majority of believers. When you take exceptionally gifted people and you exalt them, you're basically saying to the rest of the people, you don't matter as much, if at all. And Paul would say that is a tragedy. And he's applying the text specifically to himself and to Cephas and to Apollos. He's saying those that God has called to be with you must not be exalted unduly. Is there to be honor? Yes. Is there to be appreciation? Yes. In appropriate ways, but with great care. So that we don't fall into the danger of making the vast majority of people feel ineffective. It gives a false value, a false impression. God always uses common vessels filled by the Spirit to change the world. And we sadly focus on the wrong people. You may be sitting here this morning and you may say, I can't make myself talented, and that is true. And I can't make myself gifted, and that is true. But you and I can be faithful. That's one thing that I can pursue for the rest of my life. And that is to be the man, to be the woman, to be the young person that God wants me to be. So that at the end I can hear one simple statement. Well done, good and faithful servant. I think heaven is going to be very surprising. I think the people that are exalted in heaven are going to blow your mind. You see, well, let, let, me, let me go to this next section. Let's go to verse 3. Or, 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 or what, what a pastor is entrusted with. I'm going to come back to that thought. What are we entrusted with? What is, what is a, 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 a teacher in the context of church life given from God to communicate to others? And here's what Paul says in verse 1. He says, those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed Truth about the gospel that God in Christ has made abundantly clear. That is to be the message that you come to hear on a regular basis. Something in relationship to the grace of God that is manifested through the cross of Christ that is for everyone who repents and believes. Things that were formerly hidden that now are revealed. And here's the way Paul would capture this passion in his life. 1 Corinthians 15 verses Uh, I think it's verses 4 and 5. Here's what he says. I delivered unto you that which I also received. And you understand where he's drawing from, right? From verse 1 of chapter 4. Those entrusted with the mysteries of God. He says this in 15. I delivered unto you what I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That gospel 
Christ-centered message is to be the proclamation of Christian pastors. And if that is not the message that the preacher is bringing, it is not a Christian message or sermon or church. Okay, because God has called pastors to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in the context of all things. So when we think about being faithful, we think about Christ who was faithful to do the Father's will, right? It all ties back towards the cross. That if I want to know what faithfulness is, I stand in the Garden of Gethsemane, I see Jesus wrestling with the, the, the absolutely awesome and overwhelming prospect of the cross. And what does he say? Father, not my will. Yours be done. That's what every faithful pastor, what every faithful Christian, what every faithful mom and dad does on a repeated basis. God, help me to live out the gospel faithfully. You know, there are many things that compete for the time and uh, preciousness of this place. There are many opinions that Tim Hoff says or has that are not worthy of being shared in this place. Right? It's not the job for, for Tim and James and Doug to tell you what they think about things. Our job, our God-given task is to proclaim the glorious mystery that is revealed in Jesus Christ. That is what he has called us to. And Paul could say in Acts 20, 27, I have not hesitated to preach to you the whole counsel of God, the entire word of God. I haven't fallen back from one principle, from one truth. I have been faithful. What a glorious and beautiful picture. We as pastors, after all, are your servants, but you cannot be our master. Does that make sense? We are your servants, but you cannot be our master. That's the way Jonathan Edwards put it. God is the boss of both the church and its leaders. And it is him that we should strive to satisfy and delight in faithful gospel proclamation. Okay, that's the, that's the gift that's entrusted to us. And all Christian ministry must be tested by this passion and proclamation. Now, verses 3 and 4 lead us to the next thought. So we must prove faithful. Here's what Paul says then, and I love how he sets this up. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. That, I want you to let that settle in. That's one of those texts I read it as I prepared to preach. And I said, let that. I don't even judge myself. Paul, what do you mean? Look at verse 4. Paul says, my conscience is clear, meaning if I do a self-inspection, I think things are in their proper place. I don't see anything in relationship to my leadership responsibility that is out of whack, that is self-exalting. That's what Paul's saying. So then you would think to yourself, well, then, Paul, you're good. What does Paul say? My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. You know what that is? That is a humble heart coming before an exalted God, saying, God, today, as far as I know, the motives of my heart in preaching this sermon right now, I think they're right. But it doesn't mean they are. Folks, here's what that'll do. That will cause you to walk in such absolute dependence upon the Spirit of God. 
saying, God, crucify me, exalt Christ, raise Christ. Paul says, I can look at myself and think everything is good, but self-judgment, he says, is not consequential. And he also makes it very clear, I care not, meaning your judgment is not the main driver of my life. Winning your approval, having your applause leads to something that's called bondage. It's the fear of man. It's the unwarranted desire for the approval of people that you serve. That will always devastate and sabotage your motive in serving Christ. If I say what I say and I do what I do to get the applause of people, Paul says, it's rubbish. And if I think that everything's good because I think it's good, Paul says, I am not by that personal assessment acquitted. I am not declared innocent in my motives. There's a higher judge who sees in the dark. He knows everything about my life. The things that everybody knows and the things that nobody knows. He sees it all. And so Paul is very uh, quick in this text to reject hasty and premature judgment which is what we tend to do. We meet someone, we get to know them. I've had this happen. Ah, it's one of the most embarrassing that happens to me. I, I meet some young people. Let's say they're 21, 22 years old. I get interacting with them, get to know them a little bit, and then I meet their parents out at a restaurant or something, and glad hand with the parents, and everything apparently is great. I go to the young people when I see them at church the next Sunday, they say, hey, I met your parents. They were awesome. And I get this awkward stare and then you don't know that wow you know my judgment in those contexts was premature i i made a decision about the character and quality of the individuals based on a brief meeting, and that is always fatal. That's why I think you as a church, I think we as a church ought to be very careful about the leaders that we praise out there who write books and say things and write songs and say things, but you don't know them. That's why when people say to me, hey, pastor, what do you think about so-and-so? What do you think about this book? Read it. I don't know the people that wrote it. I don't know their personal life. So I can't render a judgment. I may like what they say. It doesn't mean that they're saying it for the right reason. Does that make sense? That's why in the context of church life, we should be relating pastors to people, leaders to people, so that there is a level of trust that's built out of familiarity because we all do tend to pass judgments. Here's what Paul's going to say. We all do tend to pass judgments. But he says, I'm not ultimately beholden to that. Now, it's not to say that you should never pass judgment. James is going to be dealing with chapter 5. You are to pass judgment. You are to say that certain types of behavior are on the face wrong. But you shouldn't say, I'm sure that Tim Hoff's motives are utterly pure. I listened to him. His motives have to be pure. No, they don't. No, they don't. And the thing I need to remember, the thing every believer needs to remember, there is a final judgment day coming. Now, every Sunday I preach, I know there are some people testing. Well, today I fell asleep or 
Today I didn't fall asleep to determine how good the sermon was, right? Some may say, hey, Pastor, great sermon. But you don't know my heart. Truth is, I often don't know my own. There's times I've written illustrations in my sermon and taken it out because I wasn't sure why I wanted to use that. Is there anything that in it that exalts self or that desires people to say, oh, that was funny, thank you. Trivial. Trivial. I owe my full allegiance to the one who will bring everything to light, verse 5. Don't judge anything before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. Don't render verdicts on people and say, oh, they lived a faithful life. Be very careful about human applause. Be careful. Godward applause all the time. But this applause, be very, very careful. Give honor to whom honor is due. But never come to conclusions about people till the whole story's been told. Okay, because then you will begin to trust in people, and that is dangerous. Paul says, wait till the Lord comes, and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Terrifying. And at that time, each will receive, and I love this, their praise from God. What is the praise? The praise, I think, is Matthew 25. Well done. Good job. What feels better than that? You ever had a job where the boss just, you never could do enough. You never did the right thing. And then you get a job with someone that says, hey, I saw what you did there. Good. That was great. Right? I don't know what it means to be praised by God. I don't. But that's the promise of this text. Each will receive this praise. Each one individually assessed by God after God lights the house on fire and you find out whether it's wood, hand, stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. The thing that remains determines the applause. That's why Paul says earlier, be careful how you build. As a leader, be careful how you serve. As a Christian, be careful how you work with your family in your workplace. Be careful. Remember, there's an audience of one to please and that the fear of man, Proverbs says, brings a snare. It will twist and alter why I do what I do. Fight that tendency with all of your might and wait for the surprises that will be unveiled in His glorious and awesome presence. Be careful as you live because His test is by fire. Now, this text ends with a Kind of a, I'm going to say six and seven are kind of an obscure statement, perhaps. I'm going to give you a different translation from the J.B. Phillips that I think will help you. So let's look at six and seven. It says, now, brothers and sisters, and Paul's addressing everyone in the context of church life. He says, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. The talk about whose judgment ultimately matters and the fact from verses 21 and 22 of the previous chapter, remember, that, that the fact that Paul was given to the church and that Kephas was given to the church and that Apollos was given to the church should affect how they serve because they have been trusted with that church by God. And they are gifts from God for the church. Not to be applauded, but to be heeded as instruments that God is using to bring them to greater righteousness. And here's what Paul says. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. I have 
used us as examples. For your benefit, so that you may learn from the meaning from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Here's the way the J.B. Phillips translation gives it. Don't assess man above his value in God's sight. So the things that Paul's been talking about, the value of people and ministers, is meant to temper this, I'm of Paul, I really like Apollos, I'm with Kephas. Because what does Paul say at the end of chapter 3? He says, all of those are instruments that God gave you, not to aggrandize yourselves by saying, I'm with so-and-so, but to serve you as instruments of God, to shape Christ in you and to proclaim the gospel of grace to you. That's the purpose. So in verse 7 then, here's what Paul does. Paul uses questions to illuminate God's grace and to humble our hearts. Listen to what he says. He says, who makes you different from anyone else? Meaning, what human loyalty makes you better than someone else. Illustrate it this way. If I'm a basketball fan, which I'm not, but if I was, and I was going to pick an athlete of incredible skill, I would pick someone like a LeBron James. And here's what Paul's saying. Just because you say, "I'm I'm I'm with LeBron, doesn't make you a good basketball player. Okay, don't live under the illusion that because you pledge allegiance to that star athlete that that does anything to enhance your credentials on the basketball court. Because it doesn't. So he says, what, what human loyalty makes you better than anyone else? What makes you different? What distinguishes you? Paul's saying it's never from that angle. And then he says this, what do you have that you did not receive? And the word receive here is the word that we similar to coming to trust in Christ, to accept the good news of the gospel, to participate in the gift of God through the grace of God that changes and saves. Paul's question is simple. What in your life can you look at and say, I am solely responsible for that outcome in my life? I'll illustrate it in this way. If I started taking voice lessons to become a singer on the worship team at the chapel. Okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. Some of you are laughing. Don't laugh at me. Respect me. Don't mock me, okay? I'm going to tell you something, God's honest truth. I could sing to my grave, take music lessons till the day I die, and never have what someone like Maria Kerr has. I don't say that to embarrass or exalt her. God has given her a talent. She has worked that talent to make it excellent. But I'm going to tell you something. I, I've never sensed in Marie Care any pride about her service. Because in an understanding that that gift is God-given. And to boast about my God-given talent is strange. It's just weird. It's like if somebody wins the lottery and goes and buys a new Lamborghini and they pull up in your front of your house and say, look at me, look what I did. They're like, you're a jerk. There, there is no other way to assess it. That's, that's foolish. 
That's what Paul's saying they were doing in the church. Well, I'm with Paul, therefore I'm more important than other people. Paul's like, no, you're not. I'm just a servant who's a steward for God. That's all I am. I'm just trying to be faithful. You don't get any significance from me or by standing beside me or by saying you know me. But dropping names. We do that sometimes. Paul said, there's nothing coming from that. What do you have that you didn't receive? Meaning, everything, including the gospel, is a work of God's grace. And the ability that you have to go to work and work hard, put in diligent effort. God gave you the energy to do that. Not everybody could put in those hours to accomplish that task. Not everybody has the mental acumen to be an accountant. So the accountant has some natural God-given gifts that if worked faithfully, produce incredible results. But the, the foundation gift that helps you get there is God. He gave an ability. So Paul's like, why would you get all boosted up about who you are? God gave it to you. And then he very simply says this. End of verse 7. Why do you boast as though you did not receive it? D.A. Carson said it this way. He said, the grace of God rightly understood, silences boasting. It silences and obliterates all claim for applause. All of it. Why would you boast in what has, God has given you as if it was merited or earned? I would encourage you this morning instead to think on a boasting God-given resources, which is the end of chapter 3. Now, these are my concluding uh, applications. My encouragement to you today is to remember that the only attribute that God requires you to pursue is faithful. That's it. He does not encourage you to be highly talented, highly eloquent, highly effective, successful, wealthy, intelligent. No, he doesn't. I ask you for one thing. Take that God-given pool of resources that he's given you, no matter how meager they are, and unleash them in faithful service to and for the glory of God. Get in your lane. If I was to use the analogy of planes, I would say this. I would say most of us in the church are Cessnas and Pipers. We're those little planes. We're Slogos. We're not Falcon or Gulfstream Jets. Do you know why? Because God doesn't need that. He wants to take ordinary, trustworthy stewards and impart to them spheres of influence in his kingdom. And he wants to see them be faithful. Stop foolishly comparing and denigrating your gifts by comparing them to the gifts of others. Look at the lane that God has put you in and run with all your might till the day he comes. Make a difference faithfully. Folks, here's what I want to say to you this morning. This is a burden that's been on my heart. I know we've talked about this as leaders. A strong church is always built by faithful people. And here's the challenge I would give to you. Okay, because, all right, so this, this is my cynical side. Okay, I don't mean to be hurtful when I say this, but I have a cynical side. And I'm going to let you see it. Okay. Sometimes I want to walk up to people and say, if everybody in this church 
had your level of commitment and faithfulness, would we even exist? Would there be anybody here? We don't value our own presence and input. And here's how I know. We devalue it by thinking that it on a regular basis is not essential. I'm going to embarrass the daylights out of Don and Sandy or the Thompsons. I could pick a couple people. There are people that come in the church and think that it matters. They think that you should devote yourself wholeheartedly to the bride of Christ. They think that that is a high priority in their life. They think that God deserves sacrifice and their very best. Folks, I want to encourage you. Step up. Become faithful. Find a lane in which you can live for the glory of God. And at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is faithfulness. That's what this text is saying. Make a difference. Do the thing that God has put in front of you. As I was working on these notes, I thought of a story. I, I can't remember where I heard it. So if it was shared here, forgive me for repeating it. It was a story of a, a dad. Walking down the beach with his daughter. And the beach was, I remember this as a kid in Ocean City, the beach was covered with horseshoe crabs. Now, they are amongst the most despicable things that you've ever laid eyes on, and they stink, nonetheless. This girl and her dad are walking down the beach, and she starts, like, getting seriously burdened for these horseshoe crabs. And she says to her dad, we've got to do something. We've got to save them. She grabs one by the tail and flings it into the ocean, and her dad stops says, honey... All the effort you're putting forth. Look how many there are. There are hundreds and thousands of them. What you do doesn't matter. Grabs another one by the tail. Flings into the ocean and says this. It matters to that one. The worst thing you can do is try to comprehend the entire need of the world that you live in. It's the worst thing you can do. It will drive you to frustration. It will overwhelm you. But if you, by the grace and power of God, would commit to faithfulness in the lane that you live in, God will use you to do things that nobody else can do. They don't have your sphere of influence. I hate to repeat a story, but the reason my brother and I are in Christ is because there was a man who drove a a Grumman uh, panel van and sold groceries door to door. And he thought that he should take Jesus with him. And as he did that, and look, this man had 12 children. His goal was to eke out a living for his family. But that goal was not apart from his God-given calling to be faithful. And so as he executed the task of selling meat and grocery, I think it was meat and produce mainly. He was a huckster. Selling it door to door. He would bring glimmers of gospel light. Splashes of grace. He would just distribute that as he went. That was who he was. Not an extraordinary man, incredibly ordinary, kind of a, a, kind of a fun personality, but there was nothing about Frank Robinson that you're ever going to read about in Christianity today. You're not. He wasn't that kind of guy. 
but he consistently and faithfully communicated gospel truth to my mom, who hassled my dad, and they finally went to church. The second time they went, they trusted Christ. Two weeks later, they invited my aunt and uncle, Ham and Edith Plattler. Ham is in heaven. My aunt is 94 years old in Christ. Brought them, and they trusted Christ the next Sunday. at, At Easter, I go home to a family gathering of 40 to 50 people whose lives were changed by a faithful, simple, available servant. Folks, here's what we do. We denigrate our gifts. Or we get overwhelmed by the large things that we, we persist in fixing our eyes on. Get your eyes off of that. Get it on what's in your lane. Get it on what's in front of you. And get in your panel van. Get in your office. Get in your workplace and see it as an avenue to make the mystery of Christ known. That's the only thing at the end of the day that will matter. Not your bottom line, not your accomplishments, not your accumulation. It won't matter. When you stand before God, there's one test. Were you faithful? I think some of us will shake in terror when God lights a match to the house of our lives. Because we wasted too much time. May God help us to look at a text like this and say, okay, God wants the pastors to be faithful in the communicating of truth and serving the house of God. Do it with the right motive. Why? (laughs) Because he wants it from you. That's why. He wants us to emulate something that you should aspire to become whenever we are rightly speaking and rightly living Jesus. That's his aim. That's his purpose. That's his goal. That's what he wants. A common service, humbly given, is a game changer in your sphere of influence. I don't encourage you this morning. Maybe you need to go to God and say, God, I have been fumbling the ball that you gave me. I've been concerned about the progress of everybody else around me, or I've been enamored with high flyers. Forget it. They're not the majority. Live in the majority. Be the person God made you to be. And allow the grace of God in Christ, allow the mystery that's entrusted to you to fire, to motivate, to drive everything you do for God because freely you have received. Freely give. And do that faithfully until the day of the Lord. God help us. God help us. Father, thank you for the prayer that Marie prayed earlier. Reminding us of what matters most. God, forgive our distracted living. Forgive our distraction with popular figures. Forgive us for denigrating God-given gifts amongst us who are very painfully average. God, let us this morning where we sit right now listen to the Spirit who may be speaking about an area particular in our lives where we need to become faithful as representatives of Christ. Father, I pray for parents here this morning. We struggle with with that frustration. Have we done enough? Could we do more? Help us to realize that what our kids need to see over the long haul is faithful. Faithful. And all of us, God, can do that. 
for those that serve in teaching in this church, for the pastoral team and the elders. God, help us to pursue being above all faithful, committed. Lord, perhaps there are those here this morning who can look at their involvement and commitment to local church, to local assembly, and say it's not what it ought to be. God, encourage them to step up and say, I want to be used. I want God to to serve others through me. I want to be faithful to please God, who has so richly blessed me. Bless the Lord as we sing our closing song. And I pray, God, if there's someone here this morning that may just need to come to the front, come to the altar and kneel and pray and say, God, please make me faithful. Or God, please expose the parts of my life that are not properly motivated Maybe you'll come this morning for that. Maybe this morning you've never trusted Christ. And the mysteries of the gospel have become attractive to you because you're understanding that it is a gift of God's grace and you want to know Him and trust Him. I'd encourage you as we sing our closing song, come, come to the front and say to one of the pastors, I want to know Christ. Or today I am trusting in His free gift in repentance and faith. Oh God, work, work, work in our hearts. We desperately need you. We pray for the glory of Christ.